Theater's theme here. Uh, I am hosting solo this week. Jake is in Austin, Texas. Alex is indisposed, but I am joined by a returning champion to the show. Uh, all the way from Chicago, Kenzo Shibata. Thank you for having me on, Anders. Absolutely. And this is actually uh, the second Chicago guest we've had in a row. Uh, we usually try to mix it up, but Chicago is known for its its deep dish pizzas. So we had to double double up the guests. Um, yeah, you, you're going to have gas from uh, <laughs> this week of episodes. Hey, that's that's the, the norm for me. Uh, but thank you for coming on. Uh, heck of a week. I don't know. Did you watch the or listen to the Ron DeSantis um, campaign launch on on Twitter? Not on Wouldn't Twitter, you? but through Instagram. So like the select tweets I got to see. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it what what a uh, trash fire. Yeah, failure to launch. Uh, <sighs> you really shot the bed there. It was. It, I mean, I don't know what they were expecting. Apparently, they didn't prepare for it or anything, or have any of the you know try to like do a test beforehand. Um, but. It seems like he's going nowhere. Um, I don't know who I want to lose more, him or Trump, but uh, I feel like in some ways he might be a better opponent um, to have in 2024. I would almost rather see him as the the Republican nominee just because he would lose so badly, whereas Trump might eke it out. I don't know what, what you think about that. Well, also with Trump, there's whether win or lose, there's always runoff. Like, mm-hmm. I don't mean that as, as like a runoff election, like... There's like, you know, the the uh, aftermath and him being on the campaign trail for a couple of years, that's just going to like it's going to drudge up all that bullshit again. Boogaloo boys, Mm. whatever the next flavor is going to look like, you know, what was once the tea party, that kind of we don't need any more of that. And DeSantis is so uncharismatic and tries to be a normie Republican, but also tries to signal to the the crazy far right, but kind of doesn't impress either. Yeah, I'd rather see two years of, of being bored of, of DeSantis than uh, a Trump coalition coming together and just wreaking havoc on the world. Right. Uh, well, you're uh, talking to us from a place where another place where uh, thankfully, I guess uh, Trumpism or DeSantisism is not uh, very prominent at all anymore. The right has kind of fly- fled the cities, or so it seems. Uh, Chicago, Illinois, which just elected a new mayor who's mm-hmm. been sworn in. And uh, I guess I was wondering about this, because now that the election's over, I think I saw like the day after uh, an old video that maybe somebody had been saving of Brandon Johnson, the new mayor, speaking at a Socialism 2013 conference, Mm. which was ISO's International Socialist Organization's old uh, conference they do every year in Chicago. Um, I know, I believe you said you knew Brandon Johnson from back in the day. Yeah, so this is part of why his win is so exciting, very specifically to me, but also I think this applies to just a lot of Chicagoans because, you know, he and I, uh, we both worked at the Chicago Teachers Union together. He was mm-hmm. an organizer. I worked in the communications department. So much of our work was collaborative. And I'm talking, this is like 2010. Um, he and I, at that point, we both worked uh, in the schools for about the same amount of time. Um, 
both had kids around the same age and like, you know, he would uh, bring a group together to picket uh, school closure. And my job was to make sure it like got on the news, got on social media. And so, um, you know, he and I were just, you know, teach just straight out of the classroom, um, organizing teachers, empowering them and getting us ready for the 2012 strike and um, watching someone that like I have known for so long uh, become the mayor of Chicago is just amazing to me. And, you know, that's not just to say me specifically, but, you know, this uh, town is full of teachers and full of public workers. And it's the first time it's like any of us, any of the workers that make the Chicago, make Chicago work. And, you know, despite of the bureaucracy that doesn't work, when we see one of ours become mayor, that's unprecedented. We had, of course, Lori Lightfoot, who was a corporate lawyer, prosecutor, Rahm Emanuel, who was, you know, anointed into power, like at birth, practically, <laughs> uh, both dailies who were, you know, the, the one who was, you know, the scion of the daily family. And then of course, Mayor Daly, who built the political machine here. So to see someone not come from any of that entrenched power, uh, really just kind of come up on his own, um, be just very loyal to his union, left the classroom to become an organizer and later Cook County commissioner, and now mayor, it's it's huge. It's just, um, and and now we're seeing the socialist alder people, um, the people that were dodging, you know, uh, political bullets for the past, you know, almost ten years now, become assigned to, as committee chairs. Like we're really seeing working class people rise into power. We are in Chicago, kind of the anti Florida. Hmm. That's a good, that's a good branding. Uh, maybe he should take that up, Brandon Johnson. Um, <laughs> but is he based on, you know, when knowing him, is he is are his personal politics? Would you call him a, a socialist now that the election is over? And we can we can say that. No, and he wouldn't either. OK, but the beautiful thing about the political landscape now is that there are plenty of, you know, we have 50 aldermen in the city council, they hold a lot of power uh, within the 50 wards of Chicago and also as a voting block in city council, they have a lot of power right now. Uh, we're still a minority in city council. I believe we're at about 15% socialist, which is still amazing. But people who now have key committee assignments, who've built a lot of power within their own neighborhoods and can build coalitions with other progressives, uh, Brandon's uh, Mayor Johnson's first uh, vote on city council went, um, you know, was uh, near nearly unanimous, forty-one to nine on committee assignments, uh, and you know this was allowing a lot of socialists to control these committees, and you know, it's actually an interesting uh, conundrum now because of the way our city has been so corrupt and our Democratic Party has been so corrupt. These committee chair chairmanships they wield way more power than they should and mm. now we have these highly you know democratically community-based thinking um decision makers now heading these committees you know how are we going to see these these uh these roles become more democratized because you know we've seen carlos uh ramirez rosa we've seen um rosana rodriguez sanchez all of these people really have the uh, people in their communities 
dictate how their budgets work, for example, uh, push back on where developments can be made with real power, um, you know, how they're going to reshape our city council. It's a really an exciting time. Yeah, Chicago is a very uh, unique system. I know, you know, there are a lot of cities where it's either kind of strong mayor, weak mayor. The Twin Cities mm-hmm. uh, are like that or were like that, and where, you know, a lot of the committee committee departments were housed in the city council. But in Chicago, the mayor also presides over the city council. It's kind of like a, you know, British style, almost parliamentary sort of uh, situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, these committee ships you were saying uh, are are being divvied up and given to to socialists in many cases. Uh, what is the overall composition of Chicago City Council? Because I know the last time uh, progressive mayor came into office, it was a fight, a serious uh, gridlock and really nasty, uh, you know, racial animus mm-hmm. um, came up um, that took him a couple of years to, to get a very thin majority. But is it different today? And, and does Johnson have a, a working progressive uh, majority? It's um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, just the interesting thing about Chicago is that if you look at it from like, you know, a city planner theory perspective, we have a weak mayor model, mm-hmm. uh, as they say. The reason why that's actually not true, though, is we had this very powerful Democratic Party for so long and our mayors had always been always ran the parties or at least the parties determined who the mayor would be. So, you know, whether or not you won your ward meant um, you siding with the mayor most of the time, unless you really had uh, your community organizing down, like you really, you know, had a base in that community you're in. And even at that point, you're still negotiating a lot because to get anything moved in city council, you need to be able to to form a voting block and uh, mayor, you know, the original mayor daily. And then, you know, years later, his son, they had so much power in the city that they never had to really worry about city council votes. And then with the deterioration of the Chicago uh, democratic party machine, it not being as entrenched as it was it, you know, the second mayor daily did what was called pinstripe privilege, where a lot of the money wasn't staying in the city. Uh, it wasn't about doling out jobs. It was about doling out contracts. Hmm. So that's when privatization became uh, what patronage really looked like. And so the ward level power started to dissipate. And that's where a lot of progressives found their ways in. And even though like when Rahm Emanuel was reelected, uh, that election, for example, um, a lot of so- socialists were able to get into power. I believe we won 10 seats that year. Um, and then, you know, things just grew. And actually Rahm Emanuel was the first mayor to be pushed into a runoff because he couldn't outright defeat Chewy Garcia, who is backed by many leftists and socialists. Uh, so the political landscape is just so different now than mm-hmm. it, it had ever been. Um, that, so it's- uh, the city council is there's definitely an old guard um uh like voting block but mm-hmm. they're no longer this very clear majority it's a little nebulous okay and a lot of the people who are kind of in kind of floating around not quite socialist but usually vote with the socialists um they have influence 
over a lot of people. So I imagine the politicking is going to get um, a little deeper even. Not so much the entrenched stuff, but like people are going to have to make deals hmm. to, to get anything done and maybe win by slim majorities now uh, because we don't have this us versus them, so to speak, voting block right now. Right. Yeah, a lot, a, seems like it's not as as simple as there's the progressives and the moderates. There's a yeah. lot of people in the middle. Um, so it, it, it's been almost a week now that Brandon Johnson has been in office. What are some of his uh, first actions, either through the city council or uh, via executive action? Well, he created, um, you know, a few different offices now. Uh, one of them is the mayor's office on labor relations, which is pretty amazing. Uh, this is, you know, it, it also makes me think about what it's going to look like when, for example, the teachers union or any of the public sector unions uh, are in contract negotiations because Mayor Johnson, Brandon, um, he, he's, and he's unapologetically pro-labor, unapologetically a CTU member um, for uh I think 20 years now or so. Uh, so uh, he's going to want to actually deliver for the schools what they need. Um, so I, I have no idea what this is going to, well, I, I have ideas about what that's going to look like, um, but that's a little bit down the road. But his first vote, uh, like I was mentioning earlier, 41 to nine uh, to get these uh, committee assignments made and uh, a lot of key socialists got um got into uh committee uh, seats like alderman laspada from the first ward committee on pedestrian and traffic safety this is a guy that you know famously rides his bike absolutely everywhere nice. he was the alderman of a school where i once taught he rode his bike to school when he did a speaking event for us um alderman Jean alderman uh jeanette taylor of the 20th ward She's going to uh, chair the Committee on Education and Child Development. She famously was a hunger striker to keep uh, Diet High School uh, on the South Side open. Um, and now she's going to, it's a very powerful committee assignment because this is uh, a city where the mayor runs the schools. And even though city council doesn't have direct jurisdiction over school policy, um, this is one spot where they do have some levers there where they can influence what happens. And this is, she's someone who is very, still very tied into her community and what's going on in the schools there. Uh, there's Alderman Byron Sigjil Lopez of the 25th. Uh, he's going to chair the Committee on Housing and Real Estate. The 25th Ward is Pilsen, which is uh, a deeply gentrified neighborhood. It was uh, traditionally a neighborhood of poor immigrants, Czech um, you know, a couple hundred years ago, Latino up until uh, the um, they started building a lot of art galleries uh, mm. on there and um, started taking up blocks there. So the gentrification there is, uh, is you know, has been rapid for many years. So he's going to be um, a chair of Committee on Housing and Real Estate. Alderman Rosana Rodriguez Chope, uh, Lopez, uh, blah, sorry, Alderman Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez is going to chair the Committee on Health and uh, Human Relations. And uh, Rosana and I are both actually in um, social work school together. Oh, um, nice. She's studying to become a therapist and for the, her community. 
And so um, having her chair that would be amazing, too. She's very informed on all these issues. Right. And she, she's been heading up uh, an initiative, Treatment Not Trauma, which Correct. I know uh, Brandon Johnson ran on. What are some of the uh, policy implications of that, of that going to be? Well, the amazing thing about this is this uh, was um, this really started when Rahm Emanuel closed the 12 public health uh, mental health clinics in Chicago, um, which was still our our city was, you know, as, as large as it is, only had 12. And uh, we had the, at the time the University of Chicago didn't have a trauma treatment center like the South Side, particularly in the city, was extremely um on i won't even want to say underserved but unserved hmm. and you know immediately this uh you know increases the amount of homelessness homelessness increases the amount of you know people having mental health episodes in public um as we see the you know the dire consequences of that in every city um you know Rahm Emanuel exacerbated this problem that the city's always seen and um Everything that happens to people with mental health issues becomes punitive. And the idea of this campaign for treatment, not trauma, was to not just reopen 12 mental health clinics, but to actually provide these kind of services at the scale the city needs. And, you know, we have, we're finally at a time when, um, and this was even before Brandon Johnson was elected, the city was admitting that we were at a mental health crisis. In the city and the schools needed more social workers schools needed more nurses and counselors and you know in the public as well like after you graduate these mental health issues don't go away and the idea here is to shift our focus from these punitive measures and really provide these public services to the people who need them and really reduce the amount of trauma that the city itself through policing through punitive laws uh, have on on individuals and communities. And you mentioned uh, the schools and, you know, his, you know, he's a, a teacher pub, in a public mm-hmm. uh, part of the CTU and I believe was, and this was one of the talking points against him, a lobbyist on behalf of, of CTU. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had, you know, decades now of most cities where, neoliberal ed reformers have been in charge and they want to cut, 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 do more with less, privatize, mm-hmm. charterize, you name it. But now um, this seems like possibly the beginning of a new era. What are, what's, what are the schools uh, going to be like? How are things going to change in, in public education in Chicago, do you think? I, uh, I still think of this as um, a blank canvas in some ways. Mm. Like, when uh, CORE, the Caucus of Rank and File Educators, first took over union office, that was, you know, um, 13 years ago, a group of us who came together, uh, teachers, rank and file teachers who were active in the union to uh, make our union fight against school closures, against privatization. We we've came together to organize. We tried to push our union to be more involved in that. We had to run our own slate of candidates in 2010. That's when Karen Lewis won. It was under our slate, the Caucus of Rank and File Educators. And we've been in union office ever since. Uh, the current president, Stacey Davis Gates, comes out of CORE, um, still, you know, CORE uh, being this this group that took things over. In 2010, you know, when we took over and we became union leadership, there was this 
oh crap, what next kind of feeling? Because like, what do we do now? Uh, we had, you know, at first there was a lot of um, trying a lot of things to see what works. And, you know, thankfully all these attempts at uh, seeing what works, you know, led to some really good organizing that got us ready for the 2012 strike. And I'm thinking right now, how the rubber is going to hit the road with having the progressives wielding as much power right now as we do. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty and it's great uncertainty, but um, I'm not exactly sure how things are going to start. You know, if it's, we're going to see things trickle in, like when teachers file a grievance uh, because their classroom um is unsafe because uh, the ceiling is leaking, for example, if that's going to be responded to a little more quickly because the people uh, responding to these grievances on the side of the board actually want the problem to be fixed. Mm. You know, I think that, um, you know, watching the bureaucracy actually work as it's intended, um, that I think might be the first things we start seeing. Um, and contract negotiations, I'm really curious what that's going to look like. There was a political cartoon by some right-wing asshole out there uh, that showed Brandon Johnson, you know, at both sides of the table um, negotiating a teacher's contract. And I remember posting it somewhere saying, don't threaten me with a good time because <laughs> that's ideally what we want. You know, we want yeah. a group of people who do work in the schools to sit at a table and like, okay, what can we do that's both reasonable budget-wise and will give our students everything they deserve? Yeah. Well, one of the things that I found really interesting is part of the reason Brandon Mayor Johnson was was politicized uh, as a teacher. Um, and one of the reasons they formed a I, I guess it was the lobby the, on behalf of CTU was because he found and a lot of teachers found probably yourself included that there are a lot of there's only so much the schools can do. A lot of these <laughs> problems kids are bringing in because of poverty. Um that's that's a major issue that affects our educational system. Do you think uh, there's anything he can do on a major level as mayor to bring down Chicago's poverty rate? Because when, whether we talk about crime or education or so many problems, that's really the main uh, connecting social ill to a lot of this stuff. I think that's going to be a challenge. The, the, I should say the challenge of that is going to be, that's not something I think you could turn around very quickly. Mm. And you know, this isn't just me saying this as a supporter of his, uh, but, you know, I think it's going to, it's definitely going to take more than four years before we start seeing the effects because the platform he runs on is, you know, we need to invest in communities and, you know, that, you know, data on that doesn't, you don't see that right away. Like when, you know, a kid enters school at pre-K and they get everything they need, they have uh, the correct amount of adults um, working in the building, all the resources they need, all the supports, the wraparound services outside of school they need. Uh, you know, we're not really going to see all the impacts of that until maybe they're in high school. Mm. And so it's going to take not just uh, effective leadership, you know, short-term gains for communities, but also a continued um you know, the continuation of this political power and a building of more political power, because it's something that's really easy to shoot down if you don't see these gains in four years. And let's say we are spending more on uh, public services 
you know, sometimes you do have to invest in that and those kind of things don't bear fruit for, for quite some time. So uh, it's going to be a lot of plate spinning and it's going to be continued organizing. Um, it, it was a situation where even um, Brandon won uh, by a very slim margin against Paul Vallis, whose values are diametrically opposed to his and ours and uh, anyone who's not, you know, a MAGA back the blue type. Uh, So, you know, the city is, I don't want to say divided because the people who are as far right extreme as Vallis, they are a minority of our city, but you know, those type of people can't pull together a coalition that could take 50% of the vote. So that's something also we have to keep in mind that, you know, we still have to keep building towards, um, more support for this agenda. Right. Uh, I don't know if you saw, I think it was a week or two ago, there was uh well, no, yeah, it was right after Johnston was sworn in. Fox and Friends had mm-hmm. uh, a correspondent out in the Chicago uh, neighborhood, far out neighborhood of Naperville, uh, technically not a neighborhood, technically a suburb, Yes. Uh, where they had a correspondent interviewing so a very sad situation, a guy whose um, son had been killed and he kind of tried to make it about Mayor Johnson. And uh, at at first, the the victim's father was was, you know, sort of dismissive of, of the mayor. And later he was uh, interviewed by someone else. And he said, Look, I wasn't there to really talk about Brandon Johnson. This is kind of a this was kind yeah. of a sham. Um, is that emblematic of the right wing reaction so far to to Johnson taking office? Pretty much. Uh, I mean, the funny context to that, too, is that Naperville is not even a suburb that's contiguous to the city. It's <laughs> out there. It has its own downtown, which is important wow. because it's not even like people from Naperville have any reason to come into Chicago. Like you moved <laughs> to Naperville because you're fleeing the city for one reason or the other. Yeah. Uh, and for them to do that. And and Johnson actually had a little zinger his first day on city council where he said live from Naperville, uh, you know, <laughs> this is city council and uh, got, got some applause for that. And so, yeah, Fox, the Fox MAGA thing doesn't have a foothold here, but uh, I mean, it's like how Trump won the presidency nationally, you know, mm-hmm. the vast majority of people are not honors, but the sad thing is they can, they, there is a right wing in this country and Chicago is no different. The right wing can come together and, you know, people who just don't want to pay taxes will, you know, form a coalition with QAnon. Uh, what we have potential now in the city is, you know, people in DSA and people um, who don't mind paying taxes a little bit uh, can form a coalition now as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely enough people in the United States who hear about Chicago uh, as this you know, lion's den of of crime and murder and, you know, mm-hmm. not to uh, dismiss the very real problems with with public safety and crime that exist. Um, but the way to deal with that, um, not always the most easiest, most easy way politically, but the way mm-hmm. to do that is to invest in in the city's people and not more, you know, more money to cops over and over again. Um, something I wanted to ask about that you brought up a little bit is uh, the last time Chicago had a progressive mayor, the the first African-American elected mayor of Chicago, I think almost 40 years to the day. I don't know if it was the same exact date, but certainly around the same Mm -hmm. time, exactly 40 years ago. 
uh, Harold Washington was elected mayor um, as Brandon Johnson. And uh, he planned, you know, when we were talking about long term investments in fighting poverty and how this stuff does take a long time, he talked about being in office for 20 years. That's what, you know, a lot of politicians are sort of bashful. They're like, oh, I'm only doing one term, two terms. He was like, no, I'm going to be here for 20 years. Uh, Unfortunately, that was that was cut short. He, He passed away. Um, do you think in some ways, though, Brandon Johnson is picking up? I mean, there's a huge gap between them, but do you think he's he's somewhat picking up where Washington left off and uh, trying to continue that that legacy? I think I think so, uh, for sure. If you look at you know the history of uh, the Washington coalition, there were attempts for people, you know, that coalition coming together to uh, become, you know, an alternative to the regular Democratic Party. And a lot of those folks ended up becoming, you know, union leaders, leaders of progressive organizations, uh, things like that, of that nature, and then um, have been really uh, part of the backbone of the, the city's progressive community, people that mentored me, mentored Brandon, mentored all of, uh, you know, the people of, you know, the last 10 years of organizing or so. And, you know, I do feel like this was a continuation of it. And in, in many ways, it was, I don't want to say waiting for Daly to to uh, be out of office, but Daly really did wield the city. Like, And this is uh, Richard M. Daly, who's the son who was mayor in the, sun, yeah. the 90s through uh, 2010s, was it? Yeah, he was actually... Uh, uh, he, I believe, had one year on his father. His father died in office, and uh, Mayor uh, Richard M. Daley was he. He came into office in uh, 1989, and uh, stayed in office until he decided not to run again in 2010. Uh, and uh, with him, when Mayor when Harold Washington died, uh, there was kind of a a leadership vacuum, at least at the top. So, you know, like I was saying before, this coalition that did support him, you know, all those folks were still players, um, but they weren't really able to find a unity candidate to take that spot. And the neoliberals that were taking over Chicago, um, mainly through the down through, um, you know, pinstripe pimp privilege as it, you know, existed before Mayor Daley took office, um, they, um, you know, he kind of came in during that time of there being some confusion um, with the left in Chicago, I'd say, and was able to, you know, bring in money from all of these different people, you know, basically having bidding wars against, you know, assets from the city. And, you know, he held onto that power uh, until he left office. And like I was saying before, like he just, he won city council votes and he was someone that, you know, if he wanted someone's garbage to not run, uh, you know, the garbage trucks not to run in a neighborhood, he could just do that. And yeah. we didn't have that kind of power ever again in the city. So, you know, it's it's a very different landscape now. Right. And and I'm sure you were like very young when Washington was mayor. If you Yeah, I was four. Probably don't remember much of it, but um I mean that must have been a huge setback that he that he died in office, uh, and there was nobody to to fill that vacuum on the left. Um, I'm kind of curious. So I guess it's maybe just New York city who has this, but there, I, I read, uh, 
Fire on the Prairie about um, Harold Washington's tenure. And he lived in a, a very small apartment and they had him move apartments. And that was kind of a stressor in his life was just staying housed. Uh-huh. Uh, New York City has Gracie Mansion where the mayor lives. Um, obviously mixed feelings about an executive having like kind of a, a palace almost. But do you think Chicago and other cities should also have a, a mayoral residence? I love uh, the fact that our mayors live in neighborhoods. Mm. Even though, okay, so Rom lived in Ravenswood and Lori Lightfoot lived in Logan Square. Um, none of them sent their kids to public schools. Actually, I, I would love for that to be a law. I know Brandon <laughs> sends his kids to public schools. He better. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sure he's, he will continue to do that. But uh, yeah, I, I like the fact that, you know, this is a city of neighbor neighborhoods. And uh, when old mayor Daly actually old mayor Daly lived in Bridgeport, um, you know, his whole tenure, his son eventually moved downtown, but uh, yeah, I, I love it. Okay. I mean, maybe that should be the, the law here. Uh, although Eric Adams would, I guess, be living in New Jersey still. The biggest uh, blunder though, was when mayor, we had a, uh, I love comparing her to Liz Warren, Jane, Jane Byrne. Mm, yeah. Yeah. She was when uh, Mayor Daly's successor, Blandick screwed the pooch on getting, uh, getting snow removal done during a blizzard. He, you know, that's how you get out of office in the city is mm. like not being able to take care of the streets. So this entrenched uh, guy Gets he loses to Mayor Byrne, who ran as a progressive, also very clo- very similar to Lori Lightfoot. Yeah, she famously moved into the Cabrini, Cabrini Green projects, which were notorious throughout the nation at the time in the media, right. just as a very violent uh, open air drug market where human beings lived. And she says, "Well, I'm going to move into one of those." And what she ended up doing was she had her security detail barricade one s- entire side of the building. And apparently she never actually stayed there very long. She did photo <laughs> opportunities walking in and out, but she didn't actually live there. And then when she moved out of that building, that became a coveted piece of real estate amongst the drug dealers because it became a fortress. You couldn't Whoa. exit out the back. So that became a place where, you know, I guess you could store drugs, store weapons, and, you know, you just had to have guards on one side of the building. So she exacerbated the crime in Cabrini Green through a uh, publicity stunt. Wow. Yeah, we we talked about that on our uh, Harold Washington episode, but I didn't know that the, she exacerbated that. That's pretty that's pretty sadly, but also funnily ironic. Um, something I want to make sure we get to is uh, Brandon Johnson's stance on Israel, which uh, do, didn't come out until I think the after the first election going into the runoff um, where he defined anti-Semitism as like that's any criticism of Israel, which, of course, I know you and I would disagree with mm-hmm. uh, some people are saying, oh, well, he's a local official. doesn't really matter. But Chicago, like most many cities in, in America and state governments, has bonds in Israel, uh, the Israeli government funding apartheid um is that an issue do you think you think he was just making a totally cold political calculus uh what what's your sense of his actual position there and, and is he movable i i think he's movable i 
he and I had never really talked about Israel before. Yeah. So I'm not exactly sure where his heart lies. I, you know, I imagine that was a political calculus um, to have that position. We do have a number of outspoken anti-Zionists on city council at this point. So, I mean, I guess the um, the question is like, you know, what can they do on the floor to kind of move this issue and, you know, use, you know, their influence as committee chairs and as, you know, just folks that, you know, hold power in other ways. Um, you know, people have to work in coalition often to get other officials, you know, elected to county board or get initiatives passed. So, you know, to see if, if they were to be able to move some sort of divestment measures on the floor, um, whether or not Brandon will veto it then becomes a question. I don't know if he would want to oppose something like that. So I think, you know, we at least have an opening yeah. for, um, you know, some sort of BDS happening on the floor of the city council. Even, you know, he definitely won't lead it, but I right. don't know if he'll oppose it. And, you know, we have a number of, uh, well, I mean, for example, Carlos, Ram Carlos uh, Ramirez Rosa, he had initially was going to run for Congress at one point um, when, um, uh, Luis Gutierrez uh, retired. Mm -hmm. And when that happened, uh, another, um, oh no, I'm sorry. This, I was wrong about that. Uh, this happened governor, when right? Daniel Biss uh, was going, was going to run for governor of Illinois and he named Carlos to be his uh, Lieutenant governor. Right. Right. Yeah. And this uh, suburban, uh, this member of Congress uh, from the suburbs, Bradley Schneider, uh, spoke out against uh, Carlos's uh, BDS support. And um, this, uh, you know, very cowardly uh, Daniel Biss then dropped Carlos from his ticket. Car uh, Daniel Biss is actually the mayor of Evanston, uh, a North Shore mm. suburb now, as a side <laughs> note. But yeah, Carlos, um, you know, his stance on, on support of BDS, uh, that impacted him and it still didn't impact him though in his uh, power as a member of city council. Like he is now is um, the vice, you know, he's um, the floor leader of city council. Uh, he won without going to runoff um, in his reelection. Uh, so his support for BDS has not impacted him politically outside of, you know, his possibly running for Lieutenant governor, which is largely, um, you know, a symbolic title anyway. Uh, so I think, you know, we have an opening now for a pushback on Israel where Brandon himself feels about it. I'm not sure. Hmm. Well, yeah, that'll definitely be be interesting to see. I know here in New York, uh, Zoran Mandani, who's a um, DSA backed assemblyman, uh, just introduced a not in our dime bill, uh, which is would basically, if I understand correctly, uh, prohibit public or private charities from giving money to that are, you know, chartered in New York from mm -hmm. giving money directly to Israeli apartheid. And uh, as you might imagine, that's caused quite a stir in in New York politics. But it's it's pretty hard to defend uh, Israel on the merits these days. Mm -hmm. um, so that'll be interesting to see how this this does manifest itself on a local and, and state level. Um, something I want to ask about, too, is. Chicago has uh, nonpartisan elections, which uh, to me as socialist DSA member, 
that's kind of an exciting thing it because, is. you know, it's like, oh, you don't have to be connected to the Democratic Party, at least on paper. Uh, there's seemingly independence there. Um, but the reason for this, as I understand, it goes back to uh, Richard M. Daly as a way of trying to block and dilute the power of of the progressive left. Uh, mm -hmm. Where do you stand on Chicago's elections being uh, partisan or nonpartisan? I would keep things exactly as they are. Mm. And I think, you know, mainly because it benefits progressives, uh, benefits socialists at this point, because we don't have a Democratic, a Cook County Democratic Party like we once had. You know, in fact, like some of the socialists, uh, you know, like Carlos, for example, he's a, a Democratic Party committee chair for his ward. And, you know, that, that's how well how the structure works is that each ward is its own, has its own um, Democratic, its own unit of power in the Democratic Party. So you can run for the committee chair of a ward and um, also be the alderman. That was a very common model. And that's how you had both the political and the policy power of that ward. And so, um, you know, that some of them have that strategy where they can uh, have influence the party. By being inside of it and then others are like i just they just don't want to have anything to do with that and they just you know take care of their ward as uh, alderman and then have uh, the democratic party work outside of it and i think it gives us a lot of wiggle room uh where you know there i, I remember i was working for a green party candidate running for um mm -hmm. uh it was a state state representative his name was jeremy carpin 10 years ago and, you know, because it's a state rep seat, it it is partisan. Mm -hmm. And he was Green Party, and this was the general election. And um, in his ward, people were spreading information amongst people that Green Party was the same as the Tea Party. This was like <laughs> 2010. So people were like, absolutely not voting for him. Um, and then, you know, they had more Spanish speaking uh, people going out saying, you know, Green Party is the Tea Party. Mm -hmm. And um, so then you know you really see the the difference there whereas you know pretty much anyone can say that they're a democrat in chicago and run or say that they're not a democrat and people don't really ask anymore yeah and if the democratic party um you know apparatus in that ward isn't powerful then it doesn't matter whether or not you get that endorsement mm -hmm. yeah i mean even paul vallis was saying he's a, a lifelong democrat yeah. uh, despite a very public and pretty clear clip of him saying the opposite. Uh, <laughs> it's at least not lifelong. Um, but that brings me to uh, a not not a direct neighbor of uh, Chicago or, or Illinois, but I guess a um, a Naperville uh, proximity state, uh, Minnesota, my home state, where we have the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, uh, which to uh, not to toot my own horn, but I did have, write an article a few months ago about the Farmer Labor Party, which uh, eventually merged with the Minnesota Democratic Party to create today's uh, DFL, which just had a uh, legislative session where they passed a lot of stuff uh, through a trifecta, uh, one vote majority in the state Senate, majority in the state House, and they have the governorship. Uh, they passed uh, school meal funding. A lot of good environmental legislation. 
They also passed a bill setting a minimum wage for Uber and Lyft drivers, but this was vetoed by Minnesota Governor Tim Walz, uh, although he's, you know, compared to, frankly, the governor of the state I live in, uh, in New York, he's very progressive. He's, he's yeah. signing a lot of this good stuff. Um, but this, I think, showed the limit of where the Democratic Party can really go, because uh, Uber and Lyft were just threatening to um, mess with business uh, f- for the Twin Cities. Um, and that, you know, spooked the governor and he he pulled out. Um, so that kind of there, there's a hard limit of of how far liberals are willing to go. But why do you think that, you know, it's it, Minnesota is is the I think the clearest example, but also uh, Illinois, the governor there, not a socialist, not mm-hmm. really even I would not call him a progressive on the same plane as Brandon Johnson even. But he's no. doing a lot of stuff that, you know, New York uh, is not. I mean, I don't want to shirk the fact we just saw, had the uh, build public renewables act and the um, state budget, which. Kathy Oakle had to be drags kicking and screaming to to get through. Um, but why do you think these the Midwest Great Lakes region uh, right now is is doing so much better than a lot of like more solid blue states? Well, I think specifically with Illinois, we had such an awful four years under Bruce Rauner, the right wing libertarian who famously would refuse to pass a budget. He had this this mentality or like, you know, he made this public wager where he said that I want to have this become a right to work state. Here's my plan. And if I can't get these things passed, then I'm not going to pass a budget. And he stayed the line on that for a very long time for, you know, a few sessions, wouldn't pass a budget until he realized that with agencies closing, people getting fired, people literally dying, uh, the Illinois History Museum closing, like all of these impacts, like, you know, people were really being hurt by his refusal to pass the budget. And even the most right wing Republicans in our state are not that ideological. They want the city to run. You know, this meant that streets weren't being plowed on time and, and, and things like that. So we had it so bad with, you know, someone who is so right wing that Governor Pritzker coming in. And simply just being like normal, like passing budgets, funding things that need to be funded. It um, it's just so refreshing, and you know I think that's he's to basically all he has to do is the bare minimum, and he could probably stay in office for life in mm. Illinois. And I think the politics in in New York are just so different right now, and Albany is just. It's not Springfield. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. A lot of just it, it's amazing how heavily the state will vote. Dem- I mean, I say that and, you know, Long Island just gave the U.S. House to the Republicans. But the, the Democratic Party is just at open war against like the actual party apparatus is at war against uh, the left here in a way that, you know, doesn't seem to be the case as much in in the Midwest. Although I should say, you know, you look at. Uh, Minneapolis right now, where DSA is uh, cleaning up in terms of um, DFL endorsements on the city council because mm-hmm. they have it's weird, kind of a weird system where they do an endorsement vote. Uh, it's kind of a caucus. And then they do a primary for the DFL nomination. And there was just a uh, 
city councilwoman who's an incumbent, Aisha Chuktai, I believe her name is. And uh, there was the endorsement process and the more moderate business friendly candidate who's a challenger to her. His supporters stormed the stage and basically tried to do a coup. Uh, it got violent. The police were called. Uh, he's now banned from official party activity. Uh, so, you know, it's interesting to see. I mean, and also the city council president in Minneapolis is being challenged by a uh, Black Lives Matter demonstrator who lost his eye in 2020. Mm. He just got the DFL endorsement. So it's it's this kind of, uh, you know, maybe strange bedfellows, interesting terrain where the party is kind of in flux. But as we've seen, you know, um, with DSA in particular, there are perhaps limits and, and dangers to that. I'm thinking of uh, the Nevada State Party, which uh, I was very excited and was 2021 got taken over by DSA members yeah. and socialists. Uh, but now they all kind of are saying this this wasn't worth it. We should just focus on, you know, yes, we'll use the Democratic Party line, but we need to be an independent uh, structure. Um, curious what you think, like if if the opportunity presents itself in a city or in a state, should a a, a DSA or some other uh, institution actually take over and fully take command of uh, a Democratic Party apparatus? I think that there's some value in just whatever it takes to keep the Democratic Party from becoming too powerful mm-hmm. in some ways, because I would hate to, you know, have like a DSA or, you know, a progressive coalition take over a democratic party apparatus like locally, and then eventually just lose that power. You know, I would rather just see that power disintegrate. And I see that happening here in, in at least locally in Chicago, where, you know, we don't have that Cook County machine like we used to. And there, the socialists have a machine. It's much smaller than, you know, the democratic party's machine at its height. But it's one that works in certain wards. I think one of the things that has been very brilliant about our DSA here is that we've uh, not tried to uh, bite off more than we could chew. It's like, okay, we have you know, this person with popular support in this ward. How can we support them? How can we build that power? And then, you know, okay, we need to continue to support this person. And how can we continue recruiting to recruit more candidates? So... Um, you know, I like this idea of, you know, some people being inside the party and kind of keeping the party from being able to discipline um, various politicians and then having people on the outside, just building power on the outside of it, uh, because yeah, I have no stake in keeping the Democratic Party alive. But I also, you know, other cities work differently. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think what, what's working here, we should just continue um, and just, you know, make just making sure that we never have a democratic party in this count in cook County, like we had under the dailies. Yeah. Any way to uh, undermine or weaken the, that type of uh, machine, big business machine structure uh, I'm in, I'm in favor of uh, Kenzo, any, any closing thoughts, any predictions for how Johnson's uh, next few four years in office are going to play out. It's one of those situations where he's like, batting a thousand right now so it's like you know you almost don't want to jinx it (laughs) (laughs) but you know i you know knowing what it's like to take over like a calcified institution 
and trying to transform it. There's going to be a lot of bumps ahead and mistakes are going to be made. But, uh, you know, I'm confident, you know, if you look at his transition team, you look at these committee assignments that people in key leadership roles are people that understand they can't do it alone, that they're going to have to organize people. They're going to have to listen to people to get any initiatives off the ground. So I think long-term we're in for a, a better Chicago with better schools, better public services and actual mental health services. Um, but I, I do foresee in the near future, a lot of bumps, a lot of uh, the you know capital in the city trying to strike back and trying to uh, win back power in any way they can as well. So it's going to be a lot of fight. Well, we'll certainly keep uh, our eyes and ears on that. Uh, but thank you for for joining us and filling us in. Uh, Kenzo, where can people find you? So uh, my Substack is at substack.com slash at class time. And you can also, well, actually, that's that's a good place to find me. Let's just All stay right. there. <laughs> Check Kenzo out there. All right. Thank you again for joining me. All right. Thanks, Anders. Yep. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, real quick, just want to plug paid protest this coming week if you're in new york it's going to be thursday june 1st at silo in bushwick off the jefferson l uh that's going to be raising money to send uh dsa delegates from new york to the national convention in chicago so that's why we're doing so much chicago content because that's going to be happening this august and we want people who uh, can't necessarily afford to buy a plane ticket because those things are expensive we want uh representation from low income, uh, you know, delegates. And uh, in order to send them to Chicago, we need your help. So please come out. It's going to be a great show. We have Allison Laby on the show, my friend Jaffer Khan, a bunch of funny comics. So come on out to that Thursday, June 1st, doors at 7.30 p.m., show at 8 at Silo. And thank you for listening again. <laughs>